0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So, tonight I want to go through the last eight instructions of the 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing that we've been working on these last now seven weeks. But let me just take a few moments. Obviously we just did the first eight and uh, to get a sense of how, I mean it's really, I think I mentioned the first week, it's really about falling in love, right? Because we should feel like we're really taking care of ourselves. I mean, we might be attracted to getting some ice cream or being in our bed. But in a way, we're really giving the heart, mind, body what it wants. And that's important that you have that sense. like That that idea is front and center when you sit down to begin your meditation practice. You're really taking care of yourself. It's not like bitter medicine or something like that. It doesn't mean that it isn't challenging, that it's not, we're not looking for trouble, we're not looking for pain, we're really looking for healing and taking care of and uh, releasing the potential of these beautiful qualities, wholesome, healing qualities of mind. Really following that thread of inner pleasure. So any questions about the first eight instructions that we did tonight? Anything you feel like you're bumping up against that's been challenging, that might be good to bring out? Yeah, please, and maybe say your names too. Mary, why don't you, wait one sec. Sorry, could you pass it back, Tina? thanks.
2: Um, when, when the instruction is to notice joy, um, my impulse is sort of to think of joyful things, and I think that's not what the instruction really is. I was wondering if you could say just a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So it's okay for thoughts of joyful things to come to mind, and they might anyway. I mean, we have an associating mind, so even when you bring to mind the instruction and the word joy, or maybe some of you actually, as I suggested you can do strategically if it helps, repeat the word joy, the mind is going to associate that word with memories and images that evoke joy. But the training, right? We're training the mind to be aware, to be sensitive of the feeling of joy, the mental quality of joy. So if there are mental images there in the periphery, great. But the job isn't to pay attention to the mental images. It's to be interested in the experience of joy, the actual experience of joy, a rapture, that brightness, that lightness, that flowing, moving, unrestricted movement of the heart. Yeah. So don't be... For or against those images coming up be interested in joy and the breath is in the background in a sense but it provides an ongoing structure an ongoing rhythm that sort of keeps it all in the present moment right so it it's a foil for the mind spinning out with one of those mental images for example yeah thanks Mary any other comments or questions about the first aid instructions that might be good to, yeah, Carlos.
0: Yes, yeah, my name is Carlos. Um, Just following up on that, many times um, when I'm practicing, I experience joy, right? And then, most often than not, after that, it's, it's elusive so i it's elusive yeah. i try to go after that and so so i think of that as as greed i get greedy and and then i get confused with the, with the with the instruction now we are trying to experience joy. it's like i feel like i'm forcing myself to have one of those moments
1: one uh, of those moments
0: of joy yeah so sometimes when they come they just come and they go yeah. away and But but not surprisingly, every time I I went after them, they weren't there anymore, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very particular skill about keeping something in mind versus trying to control or make something happen. They're two different things, but they're close enough that it takes practice, right? Same with calm, same with whole body, right? It's that willingness, that interest, that intention to feel the whole body or to be aware of calm in the body, to be aware of joy, to be aware of ease. Right? We're, it's really the effort of remembering instead of doing. We're remembering. So like Mary was saying, you know, those moments where joy, let's say, spontaneously was there, So that way we know what it is, so we have some sense of what it is, so then it's easier to remember it. Or even if we can't remember it, because that's actually a pretty big step, to be able to remember the flavor of joy as opposed to the memory of a time, but to distinguish the memory from, because once we remember joy, we're feeling joy. I mean, it's sort of a trick, but it's a very effective trick. When I remember metta, love, there's metta, you know. And so remembering joy is joy. And, uh, and then it's just like not forgetting. And then it will be what it will be. You know, it might really blossom or it might not. But it, it doesn't matter because we're not trying to make it blossom. We're trying to have that particular intention around joy, So the Buddhists created this map based on the teachings on karma. Intentions have consequences, right? That's a simple definition of the Buddhist teaching on karma. So one of the ways that we make karma or do intentional things is like we pay, we choose to pay attention to some things and then by doing that, we're not paying attention to anything else. And that's a karmic act that has effects. So we're paying attention to some aspect of nature we call the breathing process, that's the first couple steps. So we're not proliferating about everything else, we're secluded from everything else. And we're paying attention to an inclusive relationship to the body as a sort of stand in for the present moment, right, the body being a stand in for the present moment, we're like inclusive of the whole moment, right to the exclusion of any sort of fragmentation of our experience, I'm looking at this to the exclusion of that. No, no, we're working with the whole. Then with calm, to the exclusion of agitation. Joy, to the exclusion of something fixed, held. Ease versus, you know, tight. And then that really allows us to, to sort of uh, tune into the dispatch, like a, have a different relationship to mental activity. So for the first set of four, we're really healing the relationship to sensuality, you know, the sort of five physical senses to be kind of inclusive. Because, you know, when we're aware of the whole body and calming the whole body, we're also right there at the kind of the same frequency as hearing and seeing and the other five physical senses, right? We're kind of healing. The mind is healing its relationship to sensuality, to sense experience. And the second set of four, we're healing the relationship to mental activity. We're having this dispassionate relationship. Like the mind can just do what it wants. The thinking mind, the feeling mind, the perceiving mind. Yeah, it's just, it's just going to do what it's going to do, and that's okay. Because I'm, I'm going to rest in ease, with ease, ease of well-being, and let the thinking mind do what it does. And it just so happens, because I'm not dependent on it, attached to it, it tends to quiet down. But it really depends on, I mean, it's like a, a key that unlocks this these two healings the healing of the body the healing of the mind the activity of the body which are the five physical senses and the activity of the mind it's just like a you know a very specific key of what you pay attention to and because it's a karmic act there are inevitable consequences to paying attention to these things and it's for us to check it out to see if that's actually true for us does that actually work? So we have to check it out with some integrity, some sincerity, some committedness, because it's not something to check out. Like, does that make sense? Like, we can't check it out in our mind thinking about it. Will that work? We, could, we have to really, like, do it to know whether it works. And that's the thing. Are we willing to really give ourselves to it this persistent, heedful, yeah, it's like going for it. We have to go for it. And that's the effort part of it. It's like, it's not a hard thing to do. It's not like climbing a mountain, but it is a specific thing we're doing. And it the hard part is choosing to not do all the other stuff that we'd be doing in the moment. That's, that's what makes it hard. It's not that what we're doing is hard. It's doing that with enough committedness and sincerity that we're not doing all that other stuff the mind's in the habit of doing. That's the hard part. Yeah, thanks Carlos. Yeah, please. Mary, Um,
0: I tend to think very sequentially and so where I get confused is if when we're meditating at home, is Am I meditating on the breath and then the body and then the mental activity? Do I just focus on one at a time? I mean, 30 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, what's the thought on that?
1: Yeah, I think one thing, uh, there are a couple of different ways to do it. You might have a sense of where your heart, body, mind is at and that might give you some sense of what you're gonna, like it may be really settled. And then you you might just go right to the third set of four instructions, right? Or you might start with the third set, experiencing the mind, breathing out, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind. And then with some sense of just the space of mind, space of awareness, then go to the body very quickly. Do the first set of four, second set of four, and then back to the third set of four, Right? Or another way is you could just think about each of the 16, just run your mind through them and just sort of get an intuitive sense of that experience as you go through it. So that may take four minutes, five minutes, six minutes. And then you just practice after that. And, and you basically brought the map to mind and then you do open awareness practice, like often many of us do, but now your open awareness practice has been reminded of the value of seclusion, the happiness of seclusion, the happiness of dispassion, the happiness of ceasing that self-activity, self activity, and this process of letting go, which is really the fourth set of instructions that I'll talk about tonight. Yeah. So there's, you know, I I can't give you a specific way to do it, but what I can say is thinking that you go through it sequentially and that's the only way is not correct, right? But learning it that way can be very helpful. You know, getting a sense of the map, getting competent with the map, correlating your direct experiences with the conceptual map, Right? then doing it like we've been doing it during this course can be really helpful. And that's why thinking about the 16 steps, you know, when I say thinking, I'm really talking about, like some of you know this, the Buddha talks about wisdom in three ways, getting some information that challenges your views about things. So just on that level, pointing out instructions, usually verbally, right, that's like new information, then thinking about the information, probably better words would be reflecting on it or contemplating, because it's not just thinking, it's thinking and then applying it to your lived experience. So we're chewing on it, we're seeing how it fits with our, or lines up with our lived, direct experience of the mind. And then that sets up what we often refer to as wisdom, as insight, seeing something, not thinking something, not conceptualizing something new, but experiencing something that we haven't experienced before about the nature of experience or the nature of the mind so that's a non conceptual that's a intuitive or a direct learning about the way it is so there's pure conceptual then this middle ground where we're using the thoughts the concepts with lived experience gaining some independence from the strict concept or the what we read what we heard now we're starting to have a sense of what those words point to and then that sort of unlocks opens up an experience that the mind hadn't seen as clearly before and then we know something about the mind and then it doesn't matter what other people say because we saw something about the nature of experience in mind and so that's that's sort of this conceptual map they're pointing to to uh, specific insights, like the happiness of seclusion, you could say, is the first insight for the first four. Like, does my heart, does my mind know? Like, You can check it out right now, right? Because it's not like somewhere else, the experience of seclusion. It may be strong or maybe weak, but does your mind know what those words point to? And does it know it with, like, perfect confidence, or tenuous confidence? Right? Just to be honest about that. And same with the happiness of dispassion. Like, does that word, the happiness of dispassion, of that lightness, that freedom of, of being able to let mental activity just be mental activity, does the mind know what that points to? And cessation. Right? So, this is we're, we're really looking for, to mature these insights by having some information, by applying the information to experience, and setting up a shift in understanding when the mind wakes up or sees that, what the, the teachings, the words point to directly, in a way that changes then how the mind understands going forward because it has some direct experience that it trusts more than any ideas, because it's seen it directly. So then it, it's looking for ideas that map onto the experience, right? And this is one of the things that gives some of us a lot of confidence in the Buddhist teachings is because when insights arise, the conceptual maps that the Buddha presumably taught, it's like, oh yeah, that's a brilliant way of articulating in concept what I just recognized in my mind. And it can be, you know, it can be a little bit like, um, we, we describe that to ourselves because that's the concept we had that helped it along, that helped kind of unpack or open up that experience. But the point is that there's this faith like, oh yeah, the teachings map onto my experience. My experience is like the teachings. And that's that onward leading like, okay, if all this lines up, I wonder if some of these other ideas I've heard from the Buddha that I don't have direct experience, I wonder if they also line up. And then we're much more interested in this middle ground of contemplation. Well, let me play with it. Let me use it, like we're doing with these 16 instructions. We're bringing them to mind and see if they um, affect how the mind understands, how the mind experiences the present moment. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Maybe time for one more. Anything else about the first aid? Yeah, back here.
2: Bill, um, first of all, I just want to thank you. I've um, been practicing for close to two years, and that was the best set I ever had. And I, <laughs> that was thank you so much. You know, the calming, putting it into your body, and then the joy. But the clincher, which really, <clears throat> it just really made my, I learned a lot today. And uh one of the comments, he said, bring the breath to the mind. And <clears throat> when I did that, it was, I felt like I was on LSD. <laughs> you know, it, was a, it was a physical uh, change. And you know, I don't know what it was, but I could almost see the breath coming through my lobes. And it was just wonderful. And I don't know, because you put me in that calm state <clears throat> prior to that, and that put me in that conscious like that. But I don't know, it, just, it, was, it was cool, and I thank you for it. But, but I, I, I think I, I think I received that a feeling because I was so calm and you put me in that place of presence and it was just, it was just wonderful yeah. so I just want to thank you for the but
1: I didn't do it I mean yeah. I know what you're saying because <laughs> there can be this sense of transmission that somebody's calm is really helping me to be calm but whatever happened in your heart and mind happened in your heart and mind you own that experience right mm-hmm. and whatever the residual now, and the memory of it, right, that's sort of like spiritual gold. And it's important that you don't immediately, with the memory of it or any reverberations of the calm and joy, that you don't associate it with something outside of yourself, because that was an experience known in your heart, in your mind, right? Your heart, mind, body, it arose there and that's important because it, it if it was there right if the it, that it, that's that means it's available it's always available but if we somehow associate it with a place or a person then the idea that that person's not here or that place I'm not at that place it it sort of interrupts what the mind would otherwise do which is like no I, I know that experience that experience happened here you know it's that potential is here it's just a matter of understanding the way and we live in a lawful universe it's very lawful so you better to kind of Remember what your mind did, what your heart did that supported the mind dropping into a quieter place tonight. Because whatever it did, if it does the same thing, it will get the same results. That's how it works. And thinking, like I said in the middle of the guided sit, you know, thinking that I can't do it tonight, that is not a cause for doing it, right? Right? or thinking that I need special circumstances that I don't have. So let's go ahead and, and look at the, the next aid. And I'll start, I can't remember, two weeks ago when I was here last, and I'm grateful to Wyn and Ramesh for leading the group last week, but when I was here last, did I read the Gautami Sutta, Mahapajapati? Did I read what she her conversation with the Buddha? Yeah, I didn't. I left it with my notes for this time, so I'm presuming I I was right to not put that with last time's notes. But anyway, so that, some of you know, the Buddha's mother died at childbirth, giving birth to the Buddha shortly after. And so his mother's sister, who was also married to the Buddha's father, Right. so back then, things were a little different, and uh so she nursed the Buddha, the baby Buddha, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva as we call him, because that Bodhisattva, which is the Pali in the Sanskrit is Bodhisattva, right? That means a uh, someone on their way to being being an awakened person. So he was a Bodhisattva and uh, then later when the Buddha had his deep insight and was teaching, she um was the first to ask to be ordained and the Buddha ordained and the nun's order began, the bhikkhuni order began. And once uh, Maha Pajapati asked for some instructions, she said, it would be good, dear sir, if you would teach me the Dhamma in brief, such that having heard the Dhamma from you, I might dwell alone, secluded, heatful, ardent, and resolute, right? And so the Buddha gave her the teachings in short, which is nice for us. We don't have to spend a couple hours. It's just two paragraphs. Go to me. It's interesting. Back then, they didn't really use their monastic names. And this is true also in the Thai forest tradition. They used their given names, you know. So they you get a monastic name when you ordain, but they use the name, you know, what, your parents called you. Like Aja Mahabua, you know, Bua was the kind of his given name as a child. So go to me. The qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to passion. Right? So passion here means suffering. Not to dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, to accumulating, not to shedding to self-aggrandizement, not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to aroused persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome. You may categorically hold, this is not the Dhamma. These are not, this is not the direction we're going. This is not the Vinaya. Vinaya is the, monastic discipline, the training. This is not the Buddha's instructions, the teacher's instructions. Right? So that's useful. Anything that is about passion, about being fettered, about accumulating, about self-aggrandizement, about ma- uh, um, discontentment, entanglement, laziness, burdensome, being burdensome, that's not the way. And so he says, and any of the qualities that have to do, and then he just names the opposites, you know, instead of passion being unfettered, shedding, not accumulating, modesty, contentment, seclusion, aroused persistence, unburdened, right? you may categorically hold, this is the way. These are the teacher's teachings. And this really has to do with these last eight instructions. You know, we hear it a lot, and there's shadows to our understanding of what renunciation or letting go means. Because we turn it into a mental image, like we we construct a picture of myself as one who's let go and then i cling to that image of mark who's not attached right and this is endemic you know in the in our scene in our buddhist scene where we think we're taking a shortcut instead of living kind of coming from the dispassion, letting go, coming from the inside out as a natural expression of the mind and body the ego imagines me as an awakened, non-attached equanimous person. And then you know in a way that basically is weird and stinks a little, hard to be around, we lean into that, we become that person who's a Buddhist, who doesn't cling, you know, who's not attached. And it and it doesn't feel good. That's the real telltale sign. You know, because it's a somebody's stance. Hey, I'm free. I'm not attached. You know, I'm kind. You know, I don't care what happens, it's okay, it's okay. You know, all of those sort of, as opposed to allowing the life that's here, this heart, this mind, body, allowing it to unfold however it unfolds with no trace, no trace of discontentment, no trace of agitation, So it has to be from the inside out, and this is like we were talking about with the first eight instructions, the second set of eight instructions is really uh, about that process of letting go, setting up the process of letting go, where the first two is really doing really more about a deeper healing work. But I don't want to make too big of a deal of this, because the mind can be liberated in the first four instructions, or the second four instructions, or anywhere along the way. But it's sort of like if the first don't work, try the second four. If the second four don't work, try the third four. If the third four, you know, some nuts are harder to crack. And, uh, but the second set of eight, you know, or the second half rather, you know, really specifically focused on the letting go process. And so we've talked already about the third set of four. I'll just go through them briefly and then spend the last 15 minutes on the last four. And we can even do a little reflection as we're talking about it. But so the first one, and let's just kind of contemplate it as we bring it to mind. So breathing in, breathing out, one trains oneself to experience the mind. Not the activity of the mind, or the quieting of the activity of the mind, but it's because we've done steps seven and eight that we can do, we can begin to intuit nine, experiencing the mind. So you could use, like I mentioned before, awareness or the knowing mind, or the present moment, even the space of the present moment. And it's, again, it's a lot of it is like what's known when awareness isn't obsessed by the five physical senses, right, because that, we've healed that problem with the first set of four instructions, right? There's still, the eyes still see, the ear still hear, the nose and tongue still smells and tastes, and the skin, skin still touches but I have a calm relationship with sensuality. And then we've healed the relationship to mental activity. We have a lot of dispassion, right? So because the mind isn't confused by sensuality and mental activity, then what can the mind know because it's not like a sight, a sound, a touch, or a thought, right? It's not, awareness isn't obsessed or being captured by these more gross aspects of our present moment experience. What does it notice? So you could even think of the that um, ninth instruction, experiencing the mind, as uh, like the absence of the mind fixing on one of the five, physical senses happening in the moment or fixing, attaching to a thought, or perception, or some activity of the mind. So it has kind of experiencing the mind, that that's why space is a nice word here, the space of the mind, because it it doesn't have so much a location or this object. It's really more like a space that doesn't have obvious boundaries or limits. And so gladdening, the next step, gladdening is sort of appreciating that expanse, right? And the noticing the space and gladdening that space, appreciating that space, right? So then now the world of sensuality, the world of thoughts about sensuality, perceptions of sensuality, feelings about sensuality, those are the mental activities around the five physical senses. That's what I mean by sensuality, right? Just the five, five physical senses. That, Because that's really retreated, it's not a big deal because the mind has calm and, and dispassion, right? So then there's this quiet space of the mind. That's what the mind is paying attention to because it's not paying attention to sensuality and mental activity about, sensual, uh, about sensuality. So it knows the space of the mind. It's gladdening. It's appreciating the space of the mind. It's noticing the quiet. And it's no, because of the quiet, It's noticing the, at least in moments, absence of selfing. That the space of the mind isn't personal. It's nature. It's it's having some intuition about that. And that really, it's that insight of seeing the absence of selfing. It's a different kind of, Right, because in this third set of instruct, uh, third set of four instructions, it's like the mind is moving beyond the pleasant-pain um, binary system. Right, because the peace of not selfing isn't pleasant; it's peaceful. It's different. It's sort of a different kind of orientation. Like in the first two, it's like we're still following that thread of pleasure. And in the third set of four, we're finding something that's better than pleasure. And for lack of a good word, we call it peace or stillness. It's the stillness of the mind that's not obsessed with pain, pleasure. The first eight, we're getting to the most refined part of pleasure. And then we're realizing a happiness which we call peace that is better, <laughs> I know it sounds funny to say this, precisely because the mind isn't agitated by being in a world of pain where it's dependent on pain and pleasure. That's retreated from that world, and having put down that world, it realized this is peaceful. It's really peaceful. And in that peaceful place, it realizes it doesn't have to be dependent on selfing. Selfing doesn't have a role. It can be put down. It sees that because selfing was around pleasure pain. Like uh, Ajahn Tanisaro makes this point really well about how self, you know, like in some ways, this is a little bit of my riff on uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's teachings on not-self as a strategy. But, you know, the Buddha's primary teaching on wisdom was there's karma. This is a conditional universe, a lawful conditional universe. And then not-self comes in like So given that things unfold lawfully, what's a good way, what's a pragmatically good way to relate to the lawful unfolding? That it's personal? No. Because it's very stressful to take the lawful unfolding personal. Because we're not in control. So then we have a personal problem. (laughs) There is a lawful unfolding, but we're not personally in control of all the aspects of that dynamic. So it's troublesome to take karma personally, cause and effect personally. That's our normal predicament. So then he says, pragmatically, relate to karma, cause and effect, the lawful unfolding, as nature, as an impersonal unfolding. And see pragmatically, is that a better way to relate to karma than taking it personally? And when you check it out, you realize, yeah, that's a lot better to relate to the lawful unfolding. So this is sort of what happens in that third set, where the mind realizes that by, um, it sees, because the mind is very subtle, it's, it's tuned into the space, so it starts to see that selfiness extra. It's not adding anything. It's not functional. So it's a pragmatic choice, like, don't need that. Why carry a fifty-pound backpack along with me? You know, I realize it's all filled with stones. You know, it's not even camping gear. I'm just gonna leave it. And it's sort of that, but that's a subtle recognition, right? It takes a, a mind that isn't obsessed with grosser things to notice the 50 pound backpack of selfing, the habit of selfing. So it puts it down. And then the the last four instructions are just systematically maturing that insight right and so the pointing out instruction is you notice impermanence so when you're playing with this at home and you're set and remember you don't have to feel like you've mastered the first 12 instructions to play with the last four you can do this with a pretty gross mind right so you're just choosing when you're aware of the breath coming in and aware of the breath going in you're choosing to notice the impermanent nature like how the breath is a a process it isn't a thing the in breath is not a thing it's always becoming you know it's always changing so can you notice that about the in breath and then about the out breath and then about the in breath and when you do that with enough persistence, enough curiosity, enough play, so you're really interested. Like, oh yeah. Just noticing it's a changing thing never becomes a thing. Thing isn't a good word. It's a process, right? And as a process, it never really comes into being a thing. It's always flow. And when you get that then, The second instruction in the last set of four will start coming online, the the dispassion. Breathing in, sensitive to dispassion, breathing out, sensitive to dispassion, because the breath or any aspect of the present moment experience will appear to be dissatisfying or unsatisfying because it isn't a thing. It isn't actually ground. It can't be grasped, taken a hold of. It can only be taken a hold of when we make it into a thing. When I call the breathing process the breath, the mind feels like it can grasp the concept breath. I'm with the breath. I'm with the breath. Right. But when the mind is with the breath, as it ch- seeing the changingness, Of the out-breath, seeing the changingness of the in-breath, seeing the changingness, the flow, the uncertainty, the ephemeralness of each in and out-breath, then dissatisfaction will arise and dispassion will arise. And we'll notice that, a kind of disenchantment. I can't really get the breath in the way that I always thought I could. And we're just Striking that note over and over again, we're keeping that dissatisfaction in mind when we're in that second instruction in the fourth set. That, the, that there isn't something satisfying with the breath or any whatever it is that might be predominant as you're breathing in or as you're breathing out. So the, you can have that inclusive sense of the present moment as you're breathing in and out, or you can have a more exclusive just with the breath, right? Because you're not, it's not about the object, it's about the object changing. So it doesn't really matter what the object is. The breath is just a skillful means to keep the mind in the present moment. But whatever the mind is knowing, notice that it's a changing process. Notice that that's unsatisfying or dissatisfying. Unsatisfying? What do you say? Both? Dissatisfying. <laughs> neither one sounds, Neither one is satisfying. <laughs> and in a way, the first three relate. The first three instructions in that last set of four relate to the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta. Right? So cessation. The third is we're noticing how impersonal it is. We're keeping that theme in mind as we're breathing in, and breathing out and then that leads to the letting go the relinquishing right it's it's you know it's described in different ways and this is obviously this is a an essential sort of move in the awakening process where in a sense the mind turns away from the world of experience and opens to the world of non-grasping, let's call it, right? The reality, as Ajahn Chah calls it, the reality of non-grasping. So what does the mind need to see? Like in that, in that um, four, I wrote up that instruction packet uh, two weeks ago. So the fourth set of four instructions I wrote there, the mind can clarify this question. When seeing and comprehending what, does the mind let go? When paying attention to what, does the mind let go? Well, the Buddha t- gives us something to check out. So we that's the information piece. Now we're going to check it out and perhaps have some insight. So he says, when paying attention to impermanence, when paying attention to the unsatisfactory, the dispassionate quality of experience, not worthy of grasping, when paying attention to the uh, impersonal, this and the cessation of selfing, the cessation of taking things personally, then letting go happens. So, well, let's check that out. If we so, some sits this week. Then, whether you wait and do it at the last half of your sit or you do it for your whole set. You don't have to like, I mean, it's obviously going to be more potent the more settled and refined your mind is. This work will be more potent. But you can do it with an ordinary, ordinarily diluted mind, distracted mind, gross mind, right? Keep impermanence in mind. Keep the unsatisfactoriness in mind, the dispassionate quality. Oh, I can't, Use this to make myself happy in any way. It won't make me happy. Whatever the experience is, doesn't matter what it is, notice as you look at it, as you open to it, and see it for what it is as best you can, this is not going to make anybody happy. This cannot be turned into personal happiness in any lasting way. This is not personal in any real sense. We just keep striking those notes or tuning into those aspects of the present moment, the changing, flowing, uncertain, the unsatisfactory, the impersonal, and noticing then the letting go. Noticing something else coming into view, the reality of non-grasping, this possibility of the heart, the mind, free of grasping. That's the insight. To see that as another way, or another, some, some teachers talk about it almost like a different reality, you know, the unconditioned as another reality. So we have this reality, which we know well, the reality of clinging and grasping, and feeling bound by that grasping, that very persistent habit of grasping, and then the heart opening to a reality of non-grasping, the heart-mind with no grasping. So that's what we'll do for eighth week next Monday. And we'll have small groups to share about this reflection on the last set of four. So like I said, make sure you do it, play with it, and don't believe the thought that I can't do that. Well, yeah, we can pay attention to impermanence. We can keep that theme of unsatisfactoriness in mind, impersonal nature in mind. Use your thoughts, right? Information, contemplation supports the insight, the direct seeing. So if we're, you know, bring some thoughts in mind. Write it down so you can, and repeat it to yourself. And then just have a gap before you repeat it again. You know, breathing in. I'm training myself breathing in, sensitive to change, sensitive to the impermanent nature of breathing in. There is nothing permanent. There is nothing solid in the breathing in process. Notice that. Notice there is nothing solid in the breathing out process. Nothing lasts very long in the breathing out process. Right? And then if you do that with some sincerity, you'll notice this is a very satisfying. So then keep that theme in mind as you're breathing in and breathing out. There's nothing here for me. There is nothing here that will make me happy. Keep that in mind as you breathe in and breathe out. This is not even me breathing in and breathing out. It's just nature, you know, it's just like what it is. It's just what it is, but there's no me here. And I'll send out... um, in the email tonight or tomorrow, uh, a particular section, not long, from an article by Tani Sarubiku that really spells out the four instructions that I think is really helpful. So I'd I'd encourage you to read that sooner in the week than later in the week, because it will really help you with this reflection. And it's not long. It's just like a page and a half at the most, just talking about these four instructions uh, in a really useful way. I wanted to read it out loud tonight, but we're out of time. So let's just let go of the words. Take a moment just to be in silence, a few seconds at least. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together, these powerful teachings. Anybody who would like to write a few thoughts about Donna, and I'll include it in the Buddhist Studies email. Um, It's nice for somebody from the community to offer some reflections. You could do it orally next week, but it's also nice to send it out via the email. So just send me an email if you'd like to write a few sentences about how in your relationship to Common Ground, how you found some real joy in showing up to the circle of giving and receiving, how it's been an important part of your practice and a cause for happiness for you. That would be really nice. And especially important for people who've been around for a few years or longer. Several of you have already done it, but for others of you who to really Show up in that way and speak to the community about how that works for you. It's really important. This place is our responsibility. There's nobody else making this place happen except us collectively. It's not the teacher who makes this place happen or gave the staff, paid staff. It's all of us that make this place happen. We need to have a real, beautiful, authentic relationship with this place. Otherwise, these places don't exist. And it's nice to hear how you're doing that. So if you feel like you'd like to speak to the group next week for a few minutes or jot down a paragraph or two, that would be great. Let me know. And uh, April wanted to say something tonight.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.